Today we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. It's the parable or the short story of the rich fool. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estates with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, What should I do? I don't have enough room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, My friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Good evening. Welcome to Regeneration. Let me uh, pray for us uh, as we look into this section of Scripture. Holy Spirit, we invite you to um, be in our presence to minister to our mind, soul, and spirit, our hearts, as we listen to your word. We ask that you would um, convict us of whatever needs to be convicted of in order to bring transformation and regeneration into our own life. Thank you for loving us so much. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of us who are teachers in one form or another, I think you're going to appreciate what Jesus endured in this section of Scripture. Because in the middle of Jesus' pretty significant message comes this seemingly out-of-the-blue request from someone in the crowd. And any one of us who has taught anything has probably experienced something like this. For example, I brought up our martial arts outreach, and so I, I'll teach them how to do something like, say, throw a strike. So I'll, I'll teach them the biophysics behind it, the mechanics behind it, the techniques behind it, and I'll get the most random question. And the last one was from the six-year-old who asked me, what's your favorite candy? What? What are you talking about? I'm teaching you how to shift your weight. I'm teaching you how to, you how to create power and, and breath control and foot placement and hip placement and targeting. And, and you're asking me about my favorite candy? I was like, what are you talking about? Chocolate. And so that's what Jesus was dealing with here. Right? He, Jesus taught some really significant lessons in the first part of chapter 12 in a particular context. And this guy just throws out something that is not in line with the context. Right? Because if you look back at chapter 12 in the earlier parts of chapter 12, Jesus cautioned his disciples about hypocrisy. So you go back to verse 1 of chapter 12 Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Jesus taught his disciples how to deal with religious bullies. Right? Verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus goes on to tell them how valued they are by God. He tells them that God knows the very number of hairs on your head. 
That's how valued you are. And then Jesus told them in verses 8 and 10, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. He ended that lesson in chapter 12 with verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So Jesus was teaching some very significant lessons in a particular context. And then this, verse 13, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. What? Jesus was teaching about hypocrisy. He was teaching about fear and eternal value and sin and the Holy Spirit. Divide the inheritance. That's candy. What's your favorite candy? So Jesus gives all these significant lessons in a particular context. And then this guy, you know the guy, right? This guy, that guy. It's that guy. That guy who who has that burning desire within him that it just doesn't matter what anyone is saying or teaching or, or talking about. He has to throw out his own issue. He has his own thing. He has to get it out. It doesn't matter what's going on. He has to get that thing out. He wants his issue to be addressed regardless of what's happening around him, regardless of what Jesus is saying, regardless of context. He wants to get his thing out. So here was this crowd crowd of people, thousands according to the gospel, thousands of people who have gathered, crowds amassing, tons of people, and listening to what Jesus was teaching, and here was this guy who threw out this random problem he had, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now anyone who has preached a sermon or who has led a Bible study, you've probably experienced this, where you've studied all week and you've prayed all week. And you've sought the Lord in what He'd like to be shared and you've asked for feedback with mentors and kind of shared your lesson with other colleagues to, to bounce ideas off of them. And then as you deliver it, you, you feel it. You're doing well. And then afterwards, someone comes up to you afterward and they, they tell you something that's totally not related to the context of your message. And you, you kind of wonder, like, were you listening? Did you hear a word I said? For example... Grammatical errors in a message. I'm not good at grammar. You probably, some of you aren't either, and you're just kind of talking, right? And you're not worried about what's coming out of your mouth in terms of grammatical way of saying things. And then you come up and you say, oh, you know, you, this should have been said that way, or that should have been said this way. That's what you got out of the sermon. Out of all the prep work that I've done all week long, you got that. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out, but that's all you got out of it. And I think most people appreciate speaking English correctly. I'm included in that. I, I do. I, I do. I, I'm just not that great at it. But I hope that the message would be received more than the opportunity for speech critique. Right? That that the content would be looked at as of importance. So God speaks through His Word, right? And if God can speak through Balaam's donkey in the book of Numbers, I think He can speak through His people, me included. Right? So please share how God spoke to you and tell me my incorrect English. Like I, I appreciate it. I, I can use it. Sometimes 
people have this agenda in their hearts and in their head as to what they want to say. And after that's planted, there's no way of talking them out of what they're wanting to share. They want to do it. It's on their heart. They want to do it. And it's the same idea for other things people get hung up on during a teaching. Like, oh, I didn't like that joke, or I didn't want, I wanted to present this, or I didn't like that, I didn't like this. No matter what else is said in God's Word, there's already the seed of dislike planted in their heart and planted in their head. That's this guy. Not, not that this guy didn't like what Jesus had to say, but he already had something in his head and something in his heart that he was already hung up on. And it just didn't matter what Jesus had to say. And you have to wonder what's going on in people's heads sometimes, right? That whether we are in a place to receive from God's Word, if we, if we are in that, that place where we can receive mentally, if we can receive spiritually, receive emotionally, and that's this guy. Now, it was common for people to go to a rabbi like Jesus with a request to help interpret a law or to settle a dispute. So this guy is obviously not going to Jesus to ask Jesus to interpret or rule according to a law. He's wanting Jesus to settle a dispute. So he goes to him, he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, the topic of inheritance isn't always a good thing, is it? Have you guys ever experienced one with your family? It can get ugly. And if you want to see greed, like, in 3D... It happens right there, right? And so adult kids fighting over who gets what. And so this guy was asking Jesus to help him settle a dispute, which is a legitimate request to help settle this, this dispute with his brother. And I don't think we can even judge his motive, whether it was right or wrong. It's just this legitimate request. But how does Jesus reply? Because this I find very fascinating. Because Jesus doesn't reply in a friendly way at all. Jesus doesn't reply in a nice way at all. Read verse 14. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? That's it. Did you notice that's it? Because you go into verse 15 and what does it say? He turns to them. That's all this guy got. Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now why does Jesus answer in this seemingly not nice, unfriendly way. Well, I think Jesus knew the reason, the mission, and the purpose as to why He came to earth. It is very clear. You read Luke chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You go to Luke chapter 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was his mission. That was his purpose. That, that is why he came. Jesus wasn't concerned about earthly inheritance. He was concerned for the man's heavenly inheritance. Jesus is not about bringing earthly treasures to man. Jesus is about bringing people to God and bringing God to people. That's why he came. That's why he came in the flesh. Jesus is concerned about life everlasting, not the momentary things of life. Now, how does Jesus make the distinction between whom he shares more time with and whom he shares less time with? How does he do this? Because this guy gets one verse before he turns his attention back to his disciples, right? When you go into the verse 15, and he said to them, he's back to his disciples again. How does Jesus make this evaluation of investing more time with some people and less time with others? 
Well, I think it's a matter of the heart. Right? It's a matter of the heart. That he knows the core of that person and whether that fits into his mission and whether that fits into his purpose. He knows what's going on inside of someone. If they are genuinely seeking after the heart of God, if they are genuinely seeking a relationship with God, he will invest himself into that relationship. Even if it costs him a lot. His reputation. You know, he hangs out with the woman at the well. He hangs out with Zacchaeus. He hangs out with other tax collectors. He will risk everything. He will risk his life for you and me. Because we are pursuing a relationship with God. But... If the matters are shallow, if they are not the matters after the heart of God or a relationship with God, it seems that they are dismissed like this guy. Right? This guy got, man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? He's out there. So, that's all he got. Now, put yourself in this guy's shoes just for a moment. There's thousands of people. He had to battle through all those thousands of people to get within earshot of Jesus to shout this request, right? He had to battle through. I don't know if you guys have battled through crowds lately or not. I went to a Raiders game last week. That was crazy. That was so crazy. I've been to so many sports games. They are the by far, there's not even a second of craziness in terms of a crowd, in terms of what's being shouted and how they look and just the aggression and just all the testosterone that you can feel it in the air. You could even touch it, right? And it's, it's, it's just so crazy. This guy has to battle through this crowd. And then what does he have to do? He has to wait. Because Jesus is teaching. There are other questions being answered, all this stuff. He has to wait. Who knows how long this guy waited? Who knows what kind of a crowd he had to battle through to get to Jesus? This guy did all of this. How much time and effort did he waste to get Jesus as an audience? And what did he ask? Tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. And then what did he get as a reply? Who made me judge or arbitrator over you? That's it. A two-second reply by Jesus for all the work that he did. That stinks. Right? For, for all the effort that you put in, for everything that, that, that you do and how much you wait and persistence and patience and all this stuff, what are we asking of Jesus? Are, are we after his heart or are we not? Are we going to be turned away because we're just not in the right kind of mind frame? We're not in accordance to His will? Some of us kind of wonder sometimes, why isn't my prayer being answered? Maybe. Maybe it's not after the heart of God. Maybe it's this way. And so maybe you're not getting the answers that you're wanting. Verse 15, And He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The shallow request of a superficial person is turned into a teaching opportunity to those who are sincerely seeking Jesus. See, Jesus didn't waste that. He had this request. He gave the guy his answer. And He turns to His disciples and and He teaches them this profound principle to live by. He warns them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Take care of your heart. Guard your attitude towards covetousness. And it seems like the issues the brothers were having over the inheritance was was that the one who had the inheritance was greedy in keeping all that he had, had received while the other one 
was also greedy in that he was wanting what he didn't have. There's greed on both sides. Right? They're both greedy. Covetousness and greed lie on both the people who have and the people who have not. It's on both ends. So Jesus points out to be on guard against all covetousness. It doesn't matter which way it's coming from. All of it. Be careful of all of it. It's not just the have-nots who are covetous. The people who have it all are too. Those guys are greedy too. So you can have it all and still be greedy and covetous. Jesus warned, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? It's in the verse. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. The wisdom of Jesus following the warning of Jesus. Now isn't it fascinating that influence, status, power are all so closely tied to material possessions? Aren't they? When you look at people with status, with power, with influence, and most of the time, if not all the time, they have a lot of material possession. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote in James chapter 2, verses 1-7 through regarding partiality. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine linen clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Anyone familiar with Occupy Wall Street? Occupy Wall Street's in over 100 cities in the United States. It's in over 1,500 cities worldwide. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a resistance movement. It's a resistance movement against corporate greed and corporate corruption, which they deem as the 1%. The ironic thing to me is that I'm pretty sure that the 99% have some form of greed within them too. Right? It's not just the 1%. It is not just the haves. The have-nots are pretty greedy too. I stood with them. I heard some of their stories in Berkeley in that Bank of America there because we were having dinner across the street, me and my daughters, and, and so we went and just checked it out for a little bit. There's greed there too. Again, it's, it's not have-nots versus haves. What the demonstrations do speak to is partiality between the 1% and 99%. That's for sure. And it also speaks to how discontent people are about things. That's for sure. Partiality in regards to taxation, in regards to oversight, in in regards to accountability, that's for sure. And it's not to say that socialism is the answer because people are sinners. And people are going to take advantage of other people just like capitalistic people do too. 
Right, so it doesn't matter in regards to politics. The answer is not politics. The answer is not economics. Because if you boil it all down, it comes to people are sinners. And they will exploit one another, whether or not you have socialistic governments, capitalistic governments, dictatorships, monarchies. It doesn't matter. People are sinners. What people need is Jesus. That's who people need. The issue at hand is denying yourself and living by a regenerated spirit and likeness of God through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, the question is whether we as Christians are good at dying to ourselves, and I would argue that we are not. I think that's the problem. I think that's the problem that the world sees, is that this old person that we were supposed to be dead to, we still live within. And we still occupy this within. We still live like this. And there's no wonder that there's a bad testimony within Christianity within the Bay Area. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24 to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul also wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, when we look at the wisdom Jesus presented in the latter part of verse 15, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What does Jesus mean by that? And an important word to keep in mind when we're reading that verse is the word life. How are we interpreting that word life? In this particular verse, the meaning of life here is the essence of life. The spirit of life. It's not the way of life. It's a really important distinction to be made here. That having an abundance of possessions doesn't mean one has more life. Right? Whether you have a ton of stuff or hardly anything doesn't mean you have more life or less life in regards to what life is all about. So it's not so much about what we have and don't have as much as it is about contentment. If the protesters in the Occupy Wall Street movement are there to protest injustice, greed, corruption, that is an awesome thing. And we as a church, I think we should support them. But there are probably some who are there because of discontentment that is founded within their own greed, that is founded within their own narcissism. That's an entirely different issue. right? That, that's totally different. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-8, through Now there is a great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. How much of what we struggle with is really contentment? How much do we really need in terms of material possession? We have food and we have clothing, and we were content with that. How much of a grip would greed have in our life? If that's what we were content with, that's it. 
But that's just simply not the case in the world we live in, is it? Because we want more than that. And many have chosen to enter a, a rat race where we want more and where you can get a little bit more and then you want more. And it's never really satisfied. You just want more, more than just food and clothing. And so this guy comes over to Jesus to settle a dispute. And he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? That is all he got. And he puts his attention to his disciples after that. He turns his attention to his disciples and he warns them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Because you just saw an example of that. You saw a direct example from this guy. You saw an indirect example from the brother he's dealing with. Be careful of it all. And then he gives us these wise words. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he gives us this parable. Verses 16 through 21. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is an agrarian society. So farming was their livelihood. And Jesus uses a rich farmer as the main character in this story because they're all going to understand this. Now, what was the problem with the rich farmer? Was the problem that he was too successful? Was the problem that he had too much? See, I don't think Jesus is condemning success, and I don't think Jesus is condemning having a lot of things in terms of financial resources, and I don't think Jesus is doing that. Because if Jesus was condemning those things, I have a very difficult time explaining away successful, resource-rich people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, Lydia... There are a lot, right? So the issue is not success. The issue is not the riches that those people have. The issue is that that is his idol. He is serving that and that is serving him. He is serving an idol and he is also self-serving. That he's totally self-reliant. He is totally self-absorbed. He was not set towards God or towards others. Did you pick that up in verses 16, 17, and 18? Look back to verse 16. Starting in verse 16, the parable paints for us a picture of opportunity, right? It says, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. So with opportunity comes a ton of possibilities, right? You look at the more affluent cities in the Bay Area and you compare them to those that are poorer. Who has the opportunity? It goes without saying, right? And when you look at the lack of resources, which I think Oakland is right up there in the mix in terms of lack of resources. And so, yes, we can blame Oakland's government and say like, oh, it's mismanagement or it's corruption or all this kind of stuff. But say like all that stuff's corrected. Would we solve it? Is that all it is? Because I don't think so. 
I don't think that it's solely a problem of mismanagement of funds, and I don't think it's a problem solely of lack of resources. Because even if you throw a ton of resources into it, does it solve the problem really? Because we had a dot-com boom not too long ago, and I don't think the murder numbers went down. I don't think the violence numbers went down. I don't think any of those numbers went down. So it's not a lack of resources. There are cities that are better off with less resources than Oakland. How do you explain that? I think the problem is within. Just like it was with that brother, just like it is with many issues in our world in terms of injustices. I think there are enough Oaklanders who are self-absorbed and not looking to love God and to serve others. I think it's basically that, that there are enough Oaklanders happy to relax, eat, drink, and be merry, and not look at blessing others and not look at blessing God. I think that's the issue. And you look at verse 17 and you'll see that this rich farmer was preoccupied with himself. Look at this with me. Verse 17. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. It's all about me. Me, 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 right? Himself, I, I, my. Then you go into verse 18. It gives you the the farmer's outlook on what he was planning to do, what, what he wanted to do. Verse 18, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there will store all my grain and my goods. All about me. All about me. And then verse 19, it gives us how the, the farmer is thinking, what, what he believes. And I will say to my soul, like he dictates his everlasting life, right? Like he dictates spirituality. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So in three short verses... He's made reference to himself over ten times. Right? With, without a mention of God, without a mention of others. This is all him. Now, how many people do you know who are like this? Right? Totally self-absorbed, preoccupied with self. All they can see is self. Everything centers around them, including determining whether they're going to heaven or hell because they're talking to their own soul like they own it. How many of you have heard this? Because I just heard this a week and a half ago when I was talking with a relative. I believe that as long as I'm a good person, I'm going to heaven. Right? It's me, 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 and and my soul. I'm going to dictate. I'm going to tell you where to go. The totally self-absorbed person like that is going to land you in verse 20. God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Fool. Right? You can control how you invest your money. You can control how hard you want to work and how much money you want to make and all this stuff. You cannot control when your soul is required of you. Right? Steve Jobs is a brilliant man. Steve Jobs changed 
our world. I love his products. I love his visionary spirit. I love his entrepreneurship. I love all those things about him. But when your soul is asked of you, you don't really have a choice. So the things you have prepared, the things you have worked so hard for, whose will they be? Because just as the verses have told us before, you are born naked into this world and naked you are going to leave. You can't take anything with you. This guy did it all for himself. He doesn't even reap what he's worked so hard for. What is the first thing on our list of priorities? Right? May we not lay up treasure for ourselves, but may we be rich towards God. Right? May this parable serve as a, as a mirror of our life where we take a good look at how we are living and, and whether we have hearts of greed and, and covetousness, whether we are self-absorbed preparing for the momentary rather than investing into the everlasting. Now, a good way to test this is in a couple months, there's this thing called Christmas. Because a lot of us use it as a time of gift giving, right? And so to start now, to start praying about how to be rich toward God so that it doesn't catch you off guard and you end up thinking like, what did I just do? What did I just do with all that money that I've worked so hard for? What works of the kingdom are out there to be generous toward? Right? That's something for us to pray about. And it's not to say that you can't buy gifts for people or for yourself, that you can't be generous toward your family and your friends. That's not what I'm saying. I'm also not saying to forego gift giving entirely and make your home like frugal city during Christmas time. I'm not saying to swing on that end too. What I am challenging us to do is to pray and to ask God about how to be rich towards Him. And however that looks, then that's how it looks between you and the Lord. right? And I'm, I'm positive He's going to answer you about that when you are asking Him about that. The guy said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I don't think He stuck around to listen to what Jesus had to say to His disciples. Because I think He was too concerned about Himself. I think it was too self-absorbed. I think he just was just caring about what was going on. It was a heart problem. He had a heart problem. And it was a self-problem. That he was just totally absorbed with himself. And the issue wasn't how wealthy this farmer in the parable was or the inheritance between these brothers. The issue was that the farmer's possessions had possession over him. That the brother's possessions had possession over them. That they didn't have possession over their possessions. That's, that's the issue here, right? That he was focused on himself rather than on God. And just like the man struggling with the inheritance with his brother, they're, they're struggling with the same thing. And we'll go further into this next week, but suffice it to say that Jesus doesn't want his disciples living like unbelievers consumed with what we'll eat and with what we'll wear. Now, God understands our needs, yet are we any different than the unbeliever? And as we live in this world and have the same opportunities as those who do not know God, do we live any differently from them? And I think that's important because if we are living just the same, no wonder there's no desire to change. No wonder there's no desire to be like you. You're, you're the same. It's the same thing. There's no transformation, so what's the use? It's the same thing. 
that we have to be different as followers of Jesus, that it's about loving God and loving people, are we doing that with what we have been blessed with? Or are we just so self-absorbed and self-focused that we're just kind of like doing our thing for us? Because in the next 80 years, all of us will be physically dead if Jesus does not return before then. And if you're not, you're really close to it. And Jesus didn't come back yet. I was waiting for him last Friday, but he didn't come back. So how are we being rich toward God while we are still alive? How are we doing that? Psalm chapter 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You for Your words. Thank You for Your wisdom. Thank You for Your warning. I pray, God, for all of us, as I'm sure we do struggle in some sense with covetousness and greed, that you would equip us to challenge that way of thought, that you would give us the courage to live life differently, to live richly towards God. I ask, God, that we would look for ways to bless people and not just look for self-serving ways. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for living by example. In Jesus' name, amen.